the part that I think caused a race for the exits was the word that some select institutional investors had been given uh, a bit more information, perhaps considerable more information about the profit and revenue forecast for the company privately, while the picture being presented to the investing public was rosier. And once that scent of uh, got into the marketplace, I think that really accelerated the, uh, the selling of the stock. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I am Bobby Ambrogi, and I'm coming to you from the historic state of Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams coming to you from beautiful Southern California and not really understanding what's historic about Massachusetts this week, Bob. Not understanding what's historic about Massachusetts, Craig. I mean, geez, the cradle of liberty and all that stuff. Well, I was born there, so I get the picture, but you know, just <laughs> particularly this week as opposed to any other week. Anyway, I read a legal blog called May It Please the Court. Bob, I know you do too. Uh, that's right. I read a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Well, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management program for lawyers at goclio.com and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Uh, well, in the last couple of weeks, we watched as one of the most hyped initial public offerings in years quickly turned into a stock market fiasco. The Facebook IPO debuted on May 18th to a troublesome trading situation, the Price tanked quickly, and now the allegations are flying, including possible uh, selective financial disclosures and negligence on the part of the NASDAQ stock market. Well, plaintiffs have wasted no time in filing lawsuits and pointing the finger of blame at many of the IPO players, which include underwriters Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Goldman Sachs, and even NASDAQ. From what we understand, stock today is trading at about 26 some change, so it's down substantially from its original offering price. Let's bring in our guests and start the breaking down of the legal issues and possible liabilities. Uh, first of all, joining us today is uh, John P. Coffey, uh, John who goes by the name Sean. Uh, Sean is co-founder and managing director of Black Robe Capital Partners in New York City. Uh, he is uh, an experienced and accomplished courtroom advocate who has tried cases as a federal prosecutor, a defense attorney, and a plaintiff's attorney. And he served as lead lawyer in two of the largest civil cases ever to go to trial, the WorldCom Securities Litigation and the Baptist Foundation of Arizona Audit Malpractice Case. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer today, Sean Coffey. Bob Craig, it's great to be with you. And Bob, attorney Scott Berman is also joining us today. Scott is a partner at Friedman Kaplan Seiler and Adelman, also in New York City. He has a varied complex securities and commercial litigation practice, which represents large institutional investors, funds, and investment advisors, among others. Scott is also currently representing investors who've lost millions in the Madoff feeder funds in litigation against the fund's manager, parent, and auditor, and liquidators of the failed Carlisle Capital Corporation hedge fund in litigation against various Carlisle entities. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network, Scott. Thank you, Craig and Bob. It's a pleasure to be with you. 
And Sean, let, let's kick off the discussion with you. I, I want to. It seems that uh, every news report I read these days uh, about the Facebook IPO starts off with the words "botched" or "bungled" or, uh, or some such thing in the lead sentence. Uh, what what happened here? What's what's your take on this? Was this IPO botched? Well, clearly, it was uh, it, it was botched in, in a number of ways. Even just the, the execution of it at Nasdaq, it was uh, it turned out to be kind of a debacle. And some of the horror stories coming coming out of folks who uh, put in a bid at X and were charged Y, and and it's just a, uh, an awful story. But uh, perhaps as troubling is 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 the fact that there were material developments here right before the IPO. Uh, went out, went out, and uh, apparently some people were told a different story uh, and given more uh, accurate information than the public at large. And, and certainly that's going to get a lot of scrutiny. It's already triggered a lot of lawsuits, and um, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this all shakes out. But it, it's just a mess. Uh, this is Scott. Of course, though, uh, on the positive side for Facebook, you could say that. Uh, they actually did raise uh, a significant amount of money and a significant amount of money over and above what the stock is currently trading at. And if they're able to uh, survive uh, uh, large damage awards, then this could end up, even though it's a public re- uh, relations fiasco for them now, it could be a net win for them. And let's not for- let's not forget that the um, the underwriters made a pretty penny here as well. And and. For sure, a lot of lawyers are going to make a lot of money uh, all around this thing for years to come. Well, certainly a lot of lawyers on the defense side will make a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> I, it remains to be seen how good the cases are on the plaintiff's side. I do much more plaintiff work than defense work, uh, and I think it's still a little early to know whether, in fact, uh, there will be substantial damages uh, here or not. Uh, I, I don't disagree with anything that Sean has said, but I think uh, it's very early uh, in the story to know where it's going to end. Yeah, what I was gonna, here's the biggest IPO in ages with some of the biggest biggest players in ages. It, it, it seems to be, I mean, maybe it's just a public relations fiasco, but even at that, how, do, how does that happen uh, with such a big case, with so many uh, uh, leading entities involved? Uh, how does something so big go so wrong? Well, Sean here, I think, you know, the, the benign answer is they, they overestimated the appetite uh, of the market for this stock. Um, and there might have been a bit of psychology going on here that it was so hyped and it's such a popular uh, uh, website and you have a movie made about it and you have people tracking what the uh, the CEO is doing and what he's eating in Paris on his honeymoon you know, that uh, when it came, when push came to shove, a bunch of investors said, you know, I'm not sure I want to buy it. So they uh, they priced it too high apparently. But the the, the part that I think caused a race for the exits was the word that some select institutional investors had been given uh, a bit more information, perhaps considerable more information about the profit and revenue forecast for the company privately, while the picture being presented to the investing public was rosier. Uh, Now, they had modified it somewhat, but it was still relatively rosy compared to what they were telling the favorite clients privately. And once that scent of uh, got into the marketplace, I think that really accelerated the the selling of the stock. Sean, how often does this happen? Is this something that tends to be fairly frequent when uh, big IPOs come out, that there's information given to private investors that other investors don't get? Uh, I think it does happen, but um, here you had a situation where there was a 
what may turn out to be a material change in the forecast just on the eve of the, of of, uh, of the transaction. I mean, it, to to look at another uh, transaction that's currently in the news this week, which is the Bank of America Merrill Lynch uh, transaction of several years ago. Um, papers filed uh, in that case by the plaintiffs on Sunday. And disclaimer, it's my old firm. I had nothing to do with that case, but I, I certainly watched what my old firm does and happened to be a front-page story in the New York Times. Reflected that on the eve of the shareholder vote there, there were some material adverse developments uh, that uh, may or you know, should or should not have been uh, disclosed, and they weren't, and, and the lawsuit's the basis of that. So I do think it, it happens from time to time, but generally speaking, um, if trends continue, you know, uh, between when the prospectus is filed, when the roadshow takes place, by and large, there aren't a lot of instances where there's a last-minute material change that you have to debate, do we disclose this or not? Uh, it's happened here. Um, there's certainly an issue about whether it was handled correct, correctly and, you know, was the private story different than the public story? Uh, and I think that's going to be, you know, a big, big issue in the litigation. This is Scott here. I think that uh, what makes this particularly interesting is that uh, uh, Reg FD, which governs uh, disclosure of information, uh, doesn't preclude uh, underwriters from providing uh, oral communications to their clients. Uh, And so I'm not sure that there's necessarily been a uh, direct violation of federal securities laws here if there was disclosure made to some but not all and the uh, underlying prospectus and registration statement were still not materially false. That's what's making this litigation, uh, these litigations particularly interesting. From my perspective, um, I, since the statute of limitations on these various uh, claims under both the 1933 and 1934 Act, as well as potential common law claims for non-class actions, which wouldn't be preempted by uh, SLUSA, uh, are long enough to allow government uh, and uh, regulatory organizations to proceed. From my perspective and for the type of clients I represent, it makes some sense, I think, to wait to see what gets developed so that you can file a better claim than what's been filed. There's reasons uh, why plaintiff's class action lawyers sort of rush to the courthouse immediately after these events take place. But for larger institutional investors who may have been defrauded, there is a reason to wait, perhaps, to see what gets uncovered in the sort of free discovery you get from government and regulatory organization uh, investigations. Yeah, Sean here, I, I completely agree with Scott on that. There, are, There is a, a subset of the plaintiff's bar, and I'm an alum of that bar, uh, who will rush to file a case in uh, in hopes of uh, generating uh, publicity and attracting uh, larger investors because uh, for a classic securities fraud class action, um, uh, there's, a, there's a provision that provides that the, the, the lawyers who get to run the case are those who represent the investor that had the biggest loss. Now, that's not a universal rule, but it's the general rule. And, and so uh, some of the more established law firms with um, large institutional investor client bases We'll uh, we'll wait the 60 days, see how it unfolds, and then and then declare that they they want in. But uh, um, I I also agree with what Scott said. Uh, the, the conduct here, while uh, morally reprehensible in some some eyes, um, 
could be perfectly legal. Um, you can say something to someone over the phone, but if you put it in an email uh, under Reg FT, that could be illegal. But you know, so you kind of have this farce here where, as long as they said it instead of writing it, uh, it apparently is okay. So then, what you so you're suggesting that that in terms of what we're seeing right now in in in, in litigation. Uh, Scott, this this may this may just be the tip of the iceberg, or 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 this may, this may be the end of it if the institutional investors decide there's there's really nothing further to to pursue here. I, I think that that's absolutely right. If there is uh, more, if more comes out of the government investigations and regulatory organization investigations, large institutional investors will want to file their own lawsuits because they are traditionally more successful in terms of dollars recovered uh, than they are through the class action mechanism. Not always, but typically. Uh, on the other hand, if not much more comes out than what's come out already, they may conclude that it's not worth it to do that. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see what comes out over the next uh, uh, over the over the coming months, and we may it, this will be something that will leave the news for a while, uh, and may come back six months from now before something else uh, transpires. That's entirely possible. The 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 life of securities fraud cases, which I'll uh, use loosely for much of what's been filed here, can uh, can be many years. And what's the what's the liability of Facebook on this one? I mean, they they have. Uh, they were the ones that restated their financials, right? Well, I don't think this is Sean. There's not been a restatement. There was simply a guidance given to the analysts, uh, according to Reuters. Uh, uh, there was a guidance given by Facebook to the analysts at the investment banks that were handling the underwriting that said, you may want to modify the uh, the revenue and profit forecasts uh, in connection with our advertising on mobile devices. Um, so it was, a, it was a, an amended forecast, which is not a restatement and which generally uh, speaking it, companies are held to a looser standard on that. It's, it's, it's a forecast is very different than a, a statement of what your uh, financials were for, for a year looking backwards, for example. So um, the question is what do those analysts do with it and when and, and, uh, and uh, what the underwriters continue to say to the public at large about, about uh, the revenue forecast and, the fact that there is a divergence in 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 stories, I think, uh, regardless of whether anything new comes out, I, I believe that while large institutional investors will wait till the end of the 60-day period for the lead plaintiff uh, filing, um, I do believe that there will absolutely be a large-scale securities fraud class action brought here, uh, and the Section 11 of the 33 Act is a very uh, it's a very uh, punitive uh, uh, law when it comes to issuers of, of securities in that there is no defense. The, the issuer is absolutely liable uh, if, in fact, it's, it, it's found that uh, there was a material misstatement. They will argue that it wasn't material and it wasn't a misstatement. It was true at the time it was said and is there a, is there a duty to update and things of that nature. So, uh, but, but, but there is, in my view, um, based on what I've seen, ample basis for uh, a significant class action to be go forward whether or not anything else comes out. Scott, this this amendment was done, you know, pretty much the eve of the issuance. Uh, what's Facebook doing issuing last minute amendments like that? I mean, you know, this is anticipated IPO has been known for for a long time. Why the night before? 
Well, I think that I, are you are you referring to the revised prospectus, which was issued nine days before the trading began? I mean, that was that was a big part of uh, what's been uh, what people have been complaining about. I think that from my perspective, companies are required as they learn information to make disclosures whenever they learn them, however they learn them, and that to me. The hub of any or the basis of any lawsuits that are going to be brought here are not the ones that will succeed, not so much commence, will be based upon whether the statements in the prospectus as amended were true or false. And I suppose also, and I've seen at least one complaint filed along these lines, if there's been insider trading by the underwriters by selling short after perhaps manipulating the sale of the stock. Those are, to me, the, 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 the theories that are going to have to be looked at. I think ultimately the selective disclosure argument is not going to work here, but who knows? We need to learn more facts. What about uh, a, a different issue here, uh, these, these allegations that, that, that the, the trading of the stock on the opening day was bungled, uh, and uh, I, I believe there's been at least one negligence lawsuit brought against NASDAQ over this, and, and at least perhaps some threats of, of, of some others. Uh, Sean or Scott, do, do either of you have thoughts about that aspect of this case? Well, uh, so this is Scott. I, I think that it's uh, it seems pretty clear that uh, uh, NASDAQ uh, could not handle this IPO. I think that uh, the New York Stock Exchange is going to be trumping their salespeople, will be trumpeting that in the future to get uh, other technology IPOs. Uh, I, what's what I'm not what's not entirely clear to me here uh, is exactly what caused the glitches. Was it uh, a software problem? Was it the uh, overwhelming volume of orders? I don't really know, and I, I'm sure that will come out. And I suppose the most interesting thing here, um, and and I don't know the answer yet, uh, is whether or not their liability is capped because Nasdaq is certainly contending that um, uh, it, under its uh, applicable rules, its liability is capped at $3 million. Although it is my understanding from uh, reports in the uh, in the marketplace that they are reserving for more. And, and what's the measure million, of damages there? How, how would you ascertain what, what, <laughs> what, what happened there financially in terms of damages? I think that uh, it's a complicated question what the damages are, I, and I think it would, and, and I think that's perhaps why uh, it may not be susceptible to class treatment and might have to be considered on an individual basis. I, I don't know uh, how each particular, I think each particular uh, aggrieved plaintiff would have to show what realized losses occurred as a result of the failure of its sell orders uh, to be executed. Yeah, I, I, Sean here, I would agree that uh, there may be issues on class treatment, although if there were a, a systemic problem that applied to everyone, I think calculating uh, a particular individual's loss would, would be more of a mathematical exercise. So I, I do think we just need to hear more about what happened there before you can figure out what the scope of liability could be. And I also hear that um, you know some of the broker-dealers are actually – uh, making their customers whole uh, more, I guess, as a PR effort uh, as much as anything else. How does the NASDAQ fare in all this? Do they have any liability? Well, I think they certainly do have uh, liability for negligence. The question is, uh, is their liability capped under their applicable rules? And I don't, uh, 
I'm not. I, they're certainly taking the position that it is. Uh, whether or not uh, um, that their rule violates public policy or their uh, rule is enforceable, I don't know enough about that yet to know. Time for us to take a short break. We're talking with uh, Sean Coffey and Scott Berman about the Facebook IPO. We'll be back in just a few moments. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack is going to introduce us to the world of cloud computing and how it can be beneficial to lawyers and law firms. Jack, we're hearing great things about cloud computing and its utility for law firms. Can you tell me why so many lawyers are excited about cloud computing? I think the most important thing about cloud computing from a lawyer's perspective is that it gives them the power and breadth of features that traditional desktop and server-based software uh, gives them without all of the IT overhead and inconvenience. So there's uh, all the benefits and none of the downsides of traditional desktop-based software, and they're able to focus on practicing law with a really solid cloud computing platform behind them. So I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the, the excitement is they're now able to realize the, the potential of IT without all of the headaches. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're discussing the fallout from the Facebook IPO bust. And our guests today are Scott Berman and Sean Coffey. Let's get back to our discussion. So, Scott, do you think that there are some changes in federal regulations that need to be made to make IPOs go a little bit smoother than this one did? Well, I, I think certainly from the, uh, uh, the level of how uh, the exchange handled this in terms of the volume, that needs to be changed, not from a federal regulation perspective, but certainly how, uh, how NASDAQ runs, uh, runs its exchange. As far as federal regulations, uh, it, it, the IPOs have traditionally 
uh, used road shows and some form of selective disclosure to be able to drum up interest before the uh, the time the IPO comes out. But I suppose the uh, the outcry from this could lead to greater transparency uh, prior to prior to the IPO. And I, much like, as I understand, in Europe, there is uh, much more transparency in terms of written research reports, for example, that can be issued uh, prior to the IPO coming out. Here in the United States, underwriters are precluded from issuing written research reports till 40 days after the offering. Right. There's actually an article uh, in the New York Times today focusing on, excuse me, in the journal, uh, focusing on the smaller players whose banks didn't play in the underwriting but are free to issue uh, analyst reports because they're not precluded by the rule that Scott just referred to. I think there's definitely going to be some fallout from this. I think um, uh, there certainly is a sense in the marketplace and in the country at large that uh, in a Wall Street that it, it, it doesn't always play fair. And this just feeds into that in a big way where uh, certain uh, preferred clients are given uh, better information than uh, than mom and pop uh, on the street. And, uh, you know, we've, uh, Scott's identified one of the, the loopholes about the verbal communications. And um, uh, the general, you know, one of the things that's made our capital markets so strong over the last 70-plus uh, years has been uh, transparency and disclosure. And, um, you know, my preference would be for there to be more of that, and uh, and this this could this episode could could really uh, advance the ball on that. Let's take this uh, episode about a year or two down the road when uh, a brand new social media mechanism comes out, uh, perhaps a little bit better than Google Plus, uh, that essentially knocks Facebook off its uh, high horse, and it starts trading in the penny stocks. What would happen in those kind of circumstances? We go back to this IPO and take a look at it and say that, uh, you know, you didn't advise us that you might go out of business like the Silicon bubble, the Silicon Valley bubble that we went through in the late 80s? Well, Sean here, that, that there's, a, there's a lot to the hypothetical because I'm not sure Facebook, you know, certainly looking at my kids, I'm not sure Facebook's going anywhere <laughs> for a while. But, uh, and, and uh, I suspect, uh, I have not carefully studied the, uh, the risk factors part of the offering materials, but I suspect, um, given the quality of the lawyers there, that they have put every conceivable risk in there uh, uh, so that uh, one could not point and say, well, you didn't, you didn't tell me that there might be dramatic changes in the social, uh, online social uh, uh, culture. So, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it, I, I suspect that uh, those who have bought the Facebook uh, shares, uh, they certainly didn't count on this debacle, but uh, would have had their eyes open about the, the volatility of the of the social media in general. So, uh, I, number one, I don't see it going that route, but uh, I, I suspect that the risk factor section identified all sorts of challenges and eventualities like that. And, and I, I agree with Sean. I don't uh, I don't think that uh, uh, the failure of the the business model a couple of years down the road, which again I don't foresee, but I think that uh, like all technology, things are changing rapidly. I don't see that as being uh, the basis uh, for a fraud claim, and I think that uh, uh, you know, I think that one other interesting thing here is that uh, uh, many people who buy on IPOs buy for the pop; they're not buying for the right. long term anyway. Yeah, I think that is an interesting aspect here. Um, uh, you know, there there was this 
there, there, there was this culture for several years where you wanted your IPO price to be low, uh, uh, at least the underwriters did, because then uh, and and it would pop. Uh, back during the dot com days, it was you know they were uh, investment banks were actually landing business by doling out um, shares and IPOs to favored executives at companies like WorldCom. Um, the problem there is if if you put the stock out at uh, twenty bucks a share and by the end of trading on the first day it's at forty bucks a share, somebody made uh, twenty bucks on that share, but it wasn't the company, you know. And and if they had priced it at thirty five, then the company would have brought in a lot more capital for its business. So there were all sorts of uh, negatives associated with it, and uh, companies began to insist that uh, they be priced as close to what the market. W- would 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 pay so ideally you'd open at 28 and you'd stay at 28 and change uh, that means you price it just right um part of what might have happened here um and i if i'm a defense lawyer if i could put that on a hat on for a second and talk about loss causation uh, i'm not sure how valid this defense would be would be that because of the hype people bought this expecting that it would pop immediately and when it didn't start to pop um, and and kind of ha- have the, the, the upward uh, uh, direction in the stock market, uh, they ran for the they ran for the exits, and that that uh, accelerated the decline. Um, I, I, I expect that quite a number of people who bought in this IPO uh, who were who who did not have the access to the information that was shared apparently with some institutions fully expected this to 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 go through the roof and that they would make a killing. Just uh, Sean, Sean, another hat you've worn is as a federal prosecutor, and uh, you also uh, ran for uh, New York Attorney General. We, we, what is the role of federal uh, and state uh, uh, regulatory authorities uh, and uh, law enforcement authorities in this at this point? Should we expect that they are already looking into this, and what might we expect to see come out of that? Well, I think uh, the state of Massachusetts has already issued some subpoenas. I, I think uh, uh, I, I would be very surprised if uh, if uh, a fellow I lost to in the attorney general race, uh, Eric Schneiderman, didn't issue some subpoenas. I think it uh, it's something that's going to be looked at quite closely. Uh, uh, I certainly at this point don't see anything close to criminal liability. Um, but we don't know uh, uh, what's uh, gone on behind the scenes. But I would, just based on what I see to date, I, I, I just don't see a live criminal case here. I don't know, Scott, if you have a different view. You know, I don't see a uh, a, a criminal case staring uh, staring anybody in the face here. And these uh, uh, the often securities, even if there's securities fraud, the the standard of proof is much lower. There's a recklessness standard. Uh, for knowledge, and 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 so that may or may not uh, come to pass. Uh, there may even be civil uh, civil penalties that the SEC uh, uh, gets enforced. But I don't I don't see a criminal case here yet. But again, it's still early. One never knows. Well, gentlemen, we just about reached the end of our show. Uh, it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts, along with your contact information. So, uh, Sean, let's start with you. Well, I appreciate being with you and uh, and and hearing uh, Scott's views on this. I, I think my takeaway is, um, you know, Wall Street's just got to do a better job. Um, we, when there are these last minute developments, I think the the the, the default position ought to be disclosure, 
And uh, I would advocate uh, addressing some of the loopholes we've, we've addressed here in terms of selective disclosure so uh, so that everybody who's uh, being asked to buy a stock has, is similarly situated, at least in terms of what's presented publicly. My contact information, I, uh, you mentioned a number of things I've done. Uh, I, I can't seem to hold a job. My latest <laughs> venture is uh, I've co-founded a private equity fund called Black Robe Capital Partners here in New York. I've got a former partner of Simpson Thatcher, former adversary, Mike Chapiga, as my uh, partner, and uh, Tim Scranton is my other partner. And we're, uh, we're doing commercial litigation finance. We're, uh, we're helping smaller companies uh, finance litigation against larger companies in hopes that they can uh, secure a, a settlement that reflects the merits as opposed to the uh, imbalance in uh, financial resources and risk tolerance. So it's a, it's a relatively new venture, and I'm very excited about it. And you can visit us at uh, our website at uh, blackrobecapital.com, black robe as in a judge's robe. Thanks. Happy Great. to be here today. And Scott? Uh, my takeaway from this is that whenever there is a significant loss of money by investors in the markets, there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of looking at what deep pockets can uh, claims be asserted against to try to make uh, to make the investor whole. What makes this particularly interesting here is that it's not clear yet how much money uh, most people will actually have lost, and it remains to be seen where this stock will end up. Uh, as as of now, we have. Uh, uh, a public relations issue. We have a, a bit of a lawyer feeding frenzy. It will be interesting to see what happens in the next six months when the larger parties who want to pay for litigation, as opposed to uh, uh, by the hour, as opposed to contingency fee lawyers, uh, decide to, to have a go at this. Um, so we'll see what happens. We'll see. Uh, and, and I should say that my client base. Uh, and my bias in this might uh, have betrayed that is is large institutional investors who like to uh, prosecute cases that uh, have merit after government uh, investigations, uh, and they like to do it on an hourly or blended uh, basis. And so that is a large part of the practice uh, that I do, uh, mostly on the plaintiff's side. Uh, but sometimes some defense work. And I am a partner at the law firm of Friedman, Kaplan, Seiler, and Edelman in New York City. And my email is sberman at fklaw.com. My phone number is 212-833-1120. And uh, I've been very uh, uh, I'm pleased to have been part of this, pleased and uh, happy to hear what Sean has to say and would be welcome uh, and open to answer any further questions that anybody has. Great. Well, thank you very much for participating in the show to both of you. Uh, it's been a very interesting conversation. Bob, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to offer? Uh, well, I don't know that I do. I was actually, uh, it was uh, funny that, that Scott Berman just used the words feeding frenzy because I was using that uh, in my own mind. I was kind of thinking about that phrase with respect to uh, some of the some of the investors uh, here, and I, I have to wonder to some extent uh, to what extent some of the uh, both sophisticated and unsophisticated investors that kind of jumped onto this uh, uh, engaged in a little bit of a, a feeding frenzy. Uh, I, you know, this was certainly a, a situation uh, where uh, I think there are a lot of people. Uh, excited about uh, the potential and, and the reputation of this company and uh, perhaps they should have uh, given a little more deference to the uh, concept of caveat emptor. 
That's certainly something to think about, for sure. My perspective on it is uh, somewhat similar to the question that I asked during the program, which is that I don't think that uh, maybe I'll go the way of Steve Kaplan here and become a prognosticator. But I think in about five years, Facebook will be a shadow of its former self and uh, will not exist in the form that we see it is now. Uh, just as an example, I'm scrolling through the news before the uh, podcast this morning, and I see that the two guys that founded Napster have come up with a social media platform that involves video, and that they're calling it Airtime. So uh, there's going to be plenty of competition, and, and I don't think that Facebook is going to be able to hold its own as it as uh, time goes on. So yeah. they're five years down the road, we may see a much bigger group of uh, complaints than we're seeing right now. I absolutely agree with you on that, Craig, uh, and uh, who knows? We'll have to see, but I, I, I think that Facebook uh, is probably reaching its peak about now, and it's going to start uh, very soon, next year or two, to uh, dwindle. Yeah, always a good time to make $19 billion. Yeah. <laughs> when it's on, Sounds when good. It's on its peak. Sounds good. Anyway, thanks a lot to our guests. Really appreciate both of you for joining us today and taking the time to be with us and share your thoughts and insights on this uh, very, very great conversation. Thank you very much. And Bob, we'd like to remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. And we have a new Android app where you can access all of the Legal Talk Network shows on your phone. We hope to have an iPhone app shortly. Check it out. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. Bob, will be back again next week with another great legal topic. We'll see you then. Talk to you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.